And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. Four to six A to B, competitive excellence, and the brotherhood. The plan to win uh, has never changed. So the culture here and the plan to win is always going to be here at Ohio State. Welcome back to Four to Six with A and B, your high state podcast on the athletic Bill Landis. Joined as always by Ari Wasserman. Got a guest on today's show. Who have been our guest so far? Eddie George. And uh, that's it, right? Uh, we might have had uh, opposing beat writers on uh, last season. I can't remember. Yeah, I think I think we might have. Nobody is memorable as Mitch Sherman. Se- yeah, Mitch Sherman join, joins us today. Our colleague at The Athletic who covers Nebraska. Really good conversation with him. So, some bigger picture stuff about where Nebraska is going as a program, which I think is interesting for the Big Ten as a whole. And then, of course, we discussed a little more about the opener with Ohio State and Nebraska on October 24th and – Maybe some of the things that, that Nebraska can do to make the game a little, little interesting and teach us some things about Ohio State as it kicks its season off in a little less than a week. But before we get to that, we are going to wrap up our position group previews. We're going to do secondary and linebackers today. I think it's two position groups that are pretty intertwined, um, probably more so this year than they were last year. So it, it makes sense to me to knock them out at the same time. Uh, We had a Zoom call with Matt Barnes, safeties coach, on Wednesday. And more and more, it just sort of like, it solidified for me, I think, what this defense is going to look like this year. So I want to present these things to you, Ari, and then you tell me what you think about this whole picture. Pete Werner is moving to Will Linebacker. Baron Browning is moving to Sam Linebacker. Matt Barnes and Ryan Day have talked about Josh Proctor in a way that makes it sound like he's going to be kind of like a bullet type of player this year, like what we were talking about last year. And it sounds like Marcus Hooker is going to start at free safety. Get that picture in your mind, and then, like, what do you think about it? Because I'm not sure it's what we envisioned, you know, two months ago for what this defense is going to look like. I kind of like it. Yeah, I kind of like it too. <laughs> yeah, I yeah, like, I the thing about it that is most fascinating to me is what is Marcus Hooker? Because he was compared a lot to to Malik for obvious reasons, sharing blood. <laughs> uh, 
and you know he kind of disappeared for a few years and i wondered if he was just uh um, a late take and then all of a sudden we had started hearing about how he'd been coming on and it just kind of reminded me a little bit about malik and how his career went maybe a, a year faster for malik but still uh just picturing him out there and even being 70 percent of what his brother was i mean that's a heck of a free safety to me so the alignment um, might make sense in the sense in the sense that you've got two people in the secondary that we want to compare to Malik Hooker, but if one his brother actually is, and then we are more uh, in tune with the skill set that Josh Proctor showed in the Fiesta Bowl, obviously a little bit more refined, more experienced now having had that experience, I think that alignment can make make a lot of sense. I I hate doing the is this guy the next Malik Hooker thing? Because Malik Hooker was awesome. He was ridiculously like, they were good. Talking about yeah. Ed Reed. They were talking about Ed Reed when we were talking about that guy back in 2016. But it's like Josh Proctor showed up in 2018, and everyone's like, here comes the next Malik Hooker. And it's like, well, maybe the next Malik Hooker is his brother. Yeah, the guy who and not, not Josh Proctor. Who shares genes with him. <laughs> yeah, but it is. it actually is the same timeline. Marcus Hooker is a redshirt sophomore. Yeah, which is red, the same yeah so he's going to be a first-round draft Malik pick. Was You're in. right. <laughs> Well, it's like Matt Barnes gets on the Zoom call today, and he's like, Marcus Hooker is a – these are quotes. He said he's a true center fielder, and he's got freakish ball skills. Who does that sound like? <laughs> Who does that sound like? <laughs> so it's like, I don't know. I don't want to get too carried away with, like, Marcus Hooker, but I think I'm also just, like, so revved up for that to be football that I'm ready to believe, like, anyone is Lawrence Taylor. So um, if they want to talk about Marcus Hooker in that way – I'm kind of excited about what this guy might might give them on the back end of defense because I will say like as for as good as Jordan Fuller was last year and he was great like and underrated I thought I don't think he's super explosive um, I don't think he made plays on the ball in the kind of way they were talking about with Marcus Hooker on on Wednesday this to me this to me sounds like something different this to me sounds like what I thought Josh Proctor yeah might be. it's kind of confusing uh, let me at, at what year was. Uh, was your first year on the beat again? Fourteen. Okay, so you I got a ring. You were here, year. yeah. Well, you're the reason. You so you were here at the beginning of the Malik Malik's career because when Malik was a freshman, yeah, uh, redshirt freshman, nobody said anything about that guy. <laughs> Do you remember? It was like he didn't exist. And then there was a spring game, and he came out and made that crazy one-handed spring game catch. And like, guess what didn't happen this year? The spring game. So like, maybe Marcus made that jump quietly during Corona. We didn't get to see any of it in the spring game. We didn't get to see their alignments. They didn't have spring practice. And this guy shows up and is just – maybe there's like a, Mark, a hooker family gene clock where when you become a redshirt freshman or sophomore in college, you turn into Superman. Because I will say that that play that Malik Hooker made in the Fiesta Bowl, despite the fact that it was a long night for Ohio State against Clemson, was the best defensive play that I saw in my 10 years covering Ohio State in person. It's the best play I've seen since I've been covering it. And you, play, you can't teach sure. that. That's that's just a freakish center fielder with great ball skills. Was Did I say that right? Yeah. That's all that is. That's all Basically. that is. So, you know, I, I'm always reluctant myself to make comparisons. And the reason why I think people were comparing Proctor to Hooker is because that was something that was just kind of out there. But – I'm always okay comparing people when they're related. And it's the same thing with the Bourne brothers and other brothers who have – I mean, a lot of times brothers are very similar. You don't really see one brother turn into uh, an All-American one year and a first-round draft pick, and then the other one just stink. So, like, I'm not surprised to hear this. My brothers and I could not be any more different. 
We don't even look alike. So everything I said is bull crap then. <laughs> no. I mean, it's, you can hit, true, a, you can hit a baseball the, 511 feet, can't you? And your brothers can't. That's, that's true. That's true. One of them was pretty good at baseball. The other one sucked. Um, we all we all had our strengths. Um, yeah, this is like really fascinating to me. And I don't know. Film study. Film study. It changes film my. Study, film study. Film study. Film study. I well, I don't know. It, it does. It honestly, well, we're running out of time here before the before the season starts. So I'll probably I'll probably wait to do another film study until after we see a, see a game. But it does make me want to do it. But n- neither of these guys played a. I don't know if they played enough last year for me to dive into it that way. Um, but it does make me reframe a little bit, like what I think about Josh Proctor, and like not in a bad way. It's just that, like what I thought he was going to be, and, and how they're describing him now, like they're describing him like a box safety like you know the the ohio state defense is based off of like very largely the seattle Pete carroll like cover three legion of boom stuff and like cam chancellor was the guy in that defense that walked up from a deep safety spot and was just like a monster either guard covering tight ends or or getting involved in the run game and was just like laying people out and he was really fun to watch and that's not like what i envisioned for josh proctor but now that i get the sense that that's what josh proctor is going to be pretty excited about that because he's a big dude he's fast i think he is explosive um he could still have a really good year it's just going to look much different than i think the most fun about uh new seasons especially this one where there was no spring football is just the ability to see new faces doing new things and as we've seen over and over again at ohio state the last you know five ten years new faces come in all the time and turn out to be rock stars immediately and you know, we've had limited access, especially you, considering the fact that, you know, they're not letting reporters in, in the building, and rightfully so at this point. Uh, the number one thing that I was always kind of in the back of my head and might be an actual good story for you is who are the top five players on Ohio State's defense that could just turn out or five five players on the team that could go from generally unknown or, you know, not, not so much in the plan to legitimate potentially NFL draft pick. And I think if you would have asked both of us this question last week before Matt Barnes said reset on the call today, Marcus Hooker probably would have been on our list, right? Because we knew he was going to be involved. Yeah, he wouldn't. He wouldn't have been high on the list. He he's, he'd be much higher now. But I think I, I eventually would have landed on him. I think seven, like seven banks would have been number one on yeah. the list. I think. And then it's like you start getting into this discussion, and you know we're talking about you know defensive backs, but. Now we're talking about three or four guys who the hype train has left the station, and it's like if three out of those four or even two out of those four show up the way that we anticipate they might, then all of a sudden you have a defense that's comparable again to last year. Now, Chase Young isn't replaceable. Jeffrey Okuda isn't replaceable. But you start throwing in unnamed guys who have the talent that kind of burst out onto the scene, and you have a defense that has completely altered and changed my mind on what I thought they were going to be this year. And I think that if you're an Ohio State fan listening to that phone call, that's something that should excite you about the potential what this defense and the secondary can do under Kerry Combs. I, I do kind of want to pump the brakes just a bit. Like, I, and like Marcus Hooker can be really good without being as good as his brother. Um, I just like I want to make sure that's said because the odds of going to Newcastle High School in Pennsylvania and finding a pair of brothers who are ranked in the 600s nationally who both become Ed Reed is, like, <laughs> they're probably not on the board. Um, so, like, there's something between, like, really good and Ed Reed. Maybe, and I think Marcus Hooker lands somewhere in there. Uh, but even if he's if he's in the middle of, of that, if he's if he's a all-Big Ten caliber player, that is much more than I would have expected him. 
uh, to, to be this year. I didn't even expect them. I expected them to play because I knew they were going to play more split safety coverages, but I thought it would be Josh Proctor in this role. And, like, now I'm all on board with Marcus Hooker if being the starting free safety. Marcus Hooker can't cover 40 yards of field with the ball in his air with his back to the quarterback and then catch it with one hand in the corner of the end zone. He's a freaking loser and a failure. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, bud. Couldn't, couldn't stack up. Can't do it. No, yeah, there's, there's again, we had this conversation all the time on this podcast. There's a difference between better than ever and better than last year and really good, and really good is acceptable. Yep. Um, sticking with the secondary, Sean Wade is moving outside. I, I think we know that. What is your anticipation in terms of, like, snap percentages outside as opposed to him moving around. Do you think he'll be pretty locked in outside all the time, or do you think they're going to play matchups like they've been talking about and maybe we see Sean Wade playing a couple different positions? You know what I don't understand, Bill, is it's my understanding, and you tell me if I'm wrong because you have a greater understanding of this stuff, but isn't the slot the hardest receiver to cover on the field? Because he has the yeah, most room go. to operate, most route potential, and usually the, the quickest, best hands, great route runner. I mean, the slot. So to me, I never really understood the idea that a player would have to go from slot corner to the outside corner to prove that they're worthy of being a first-round NFL draft pick. And I think part of that might just be, are you able to match up with big-bodied receivers who are just – in the NFL, you got to – face people who are built like Calvin Johnson every week. So I understand like it's a physical thing. But if Ohio State is matched up with a team where their best player is a slot guy, don't you want Wade back in that natural place that he was so good at last year just because he's the best corner on your team? I, I don't I don't understand the idea of having to prove that you can play outside if it's every bit as hard to play in the slot. I think it's because he's not going to – he can't – no offense to Sean Wade, who's very good. I don't think he can cover NFL slot receivers. Um, I don't think he has the the quickness to do it. Um, I think his body type, his skill set, lends itself more to playing outside in the NFL, and that's why he wants to do this. And it's funny you mentioned, like, the idea of don't you want Sean Wade just going wherever the toughest matchup is. And I think this year you probably do. But, but last year, and I think I've said this before, when they played Penn State, like, Jeff Okuda followed K.J. Hamler. Yeah. Like Sean Wade wasn't. No, I know, but I just mean in the the frame of what they need this year. He was a second-best corner on the roster last year. Yeah, yeah, I agree agree with that. And it's a fair question. And I think this year that answer is yes, but it's a matter of circumstance, I think, more than anything else. Last year that wasn't the case. But I don't don't know, like – they play. I don't know who Penn State has in the slot this this year in the in the second week. But like Wondell Robinson, I, I don't know. I don't know what I think of Sean Wade trying to cover Wondell Robinson against Nebraska. I don't know what I think of Sean Wade trying to cover Wap Fillier when they play Indiana later in the year. And he covered him last year, and I think he did he did a good job. Um, but I kind of like Sean outside. So more, who's your pick then? Like in, in those scenarios, just blindly. I know we we still have some some more to see, but if you had to blindly pick what guy you'd want on that quick route running slot receiver and you had your blind guess on this secondary who's your guy i think my pick would be cam brown because i know he's really fast but that's not going to be who it is i think like marcus williamson's going to get the first crack at that i'm very curious to see and like cam martinez i'm is very curious him. to see uh, marcus williams development this year too because it's another it's, it's another yeah, one too. of those guys that kind of 
seemed to have lost his way early in his career. Now he's stepping up into a pretty aggressively important role. And I'm very curious to see, you know, how perseverance and staying with the program and developing, you know, can turn out for him. I mean, I'm very excited and I hope for his sake, after all the work he's put in and kind of paid his dues, that this is the opportunity for him to step in and, and really make a difference in the secondary for them. Yeah, and I want to say something because I, what I said a few minutes ago might sound contradictory because of how much I lauded Sean Wade last year for being so important. He was really good in that role, and part of what made him really good is that he's a bigger body who could act as another defender against the run in the box often. Um, and he is really physical, and he's a really good blitzer too. Um, so he was great in that role last year. I'm t- I'm, when I say I have questions about him covering slots, I'm talking about as a pro, not in right. college. Because um, it's a completely different but, animal in the pros. Right. Um so I think it makes sense for him to move out there and get that experience. And Landis, they know he's really good at blitzing. They saw it. <laughs> oh, yeah, sorry. He tied it up really well, and Trevor Lawrence ducked into it and should have been targeting. I'm sorry for bringing it back up. Should not have been targeting. Uh, I think you and I are both buying seven bags hype, right? Are we on that train? I think you're more on it than I am. Yeah, probably. I'm on every yeah, train I right c- now. You can tell me that Blake Hallbill is going to be a good safety. Could you hear? Ohio Matt Barnes was just on the call today, and he said Blake Hallbill is going to start at halfback. <laughs> Landis, boom, Th- thousand, thousand yards, over thousand under yards fifty-five yards. points a game for Ohio. Over. No, but I feel I feel better about these. I feel better about the secondary in general right now than I felt you know a month or two, three months ago. Certainly better than I felt in the spring. Um, they have options, really good, which and I think my, at Ohio State, options yeah, is yeah. is a thing. And I love um, I love Josh Proctor potential bullet kind of deal. Um, I think it's going to work out really well for him and really well for the defense. So I'll ask you this: confidence level in the secondary, one uh, to ten, seven and a half, probably. I'm a little higher than that. Yeah, I'm like a, I'm like a seven point nine. Stop with these like I'm weird higher. decimal points. Just say hey. I like the decimal points. No, I'm a seven point nine. I'm a seven point nine. Just just shy of an eight. But I like before I think if you would have asked me this question two days ago, I would have said a lower end seven, maybe even a high six. Yeah. Like I Marcus Hooker hype train extravaganza like has me that much more confident in the secondary. Sounds like a story to me. I don't know if that's the wrong way. I don't know if that's the wrong way to view it or well, not. Well, I think that you get a I'm kick. Like very, very. I think you are very this. fascinated in general about uh, alignments and strategy and X's and O's. And I think when you start hearing about things and the potential of it, I think your mind gets going, and, and rightfully so. And I think it'd be a great story if you get around to doing it. I'm a very busy man. We'll see. Um, all right, linebacker is a little less exciting because the everyone's back for the most part. Malik Harrison's going, and that's not a, that's not a small loss. He was the best linebacker last year, but. The top three guys behind Malik Harrison are all back, and the juniors behind those guys are all back. And there's a lot to sort through with or for Al Washington. So I want to ask you this question, and this is a thinker. You might need to write this down. Last year, this is how the linebackers ranked in in total snaps played. Malik Harrison was first, Pete Werner was second, Tuff Borland was third, Baron Browning was fourth. How do you think that top four looks this year? Warner won. Browning two. Uh, okay. Borland three. No, Mitchell three. Borland four. I'm similar. I said Werner one. I think that's that's a slam dunk because he's playing Malik Harrison's spot now. I said Mitchell two 
because I do think if he is healthy, he will end up playing more than Tough Borland. I still think Tough plays quite a bit um, at Mike linebacker, inside linebacker, but but I think if if Mitchell gets the opportunity to show the kind of player he is, he will earn more than more Browning than Tough Borland by the end of the year. Yes, so I have I have Werner first, Mitchell second, Browning third, Borland fourth, and I think those two, three, four will all be pretty close, and Werner will be the runaway leader. But Browning is moving to Sam. And last year, Pete Werner played a lot. He came off the field some, but he didn't come off the field all that often playing Sam. I think Browning's going to come off the field more because someone has to come off the field for Josh Proctor to come on the field and play that bullet role. Um, and I don't know. That's like week-to-week, opponent-to-opponent game plan stuff that we don't have to get into at the moment. And Baron Browning will get some pass rush opportunities too, but like that that position, I just think in general is going to come off the field more than it did last year. So that's why I think Mitchell will play more than Browning. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, they're all going to be close. And Justin so. Hilliard will mix in there. Yeah, I think it'll all be pretty close. Justin Hilliard, I think, will mix in with Browning at at Sam. Um, Dallas Gant, I don't know. He can play. I think he can play all three if they wanted him to. Certainly can play the two inside spots. I think he gets on the field more, but. With Borland and, and Mitchell and Werner, I still think that's a tough proposition. And then Kavon Pope, I don't know either. I think I think he's a Sam and Browning and Hilliard, I would assume, are, are in front of him in the pecking order. So there's some juniors that are going to have to do some more waiting, and I'm interested to see how that shake things, how that makes things shake out moving sort of beyond this year, especially with the extra year of eligibility. I think that's the most comp- most complicated scenario at linebacker than anywhere else. Um, but overall, this feels. Like not like the most exciting position, but a very solid position. Props to those linebackers for waiting, and it's good to see a few of them might have an opportunity to get in there and and play a little bit more. Do you think Byron Browning challenges to be the team's sack leader this year? Yes, I think so too. I might have even said in the spring that I thought he would be the sack leader. I've since changed my mind because I think it's going to be Tyreek Smith, but I think Byron Browning's right there. Yeah, I, I see a world where. Uh, Browning, Smith, and Zach Harrison all have like nine. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah where they all kind of where it's a three-headed monster. They get uh, a lot of pressure on the quarterback, but there isn't that one uh, player like Chase Young that everybody's circling. Uh, and I think that's healthy for the defense. Given how good Pete Werner was at Sam last year, where are you on moving him? Do you think it's the right call? Are you? I'm, I'm confident in, in Warner. Him? Uh, I think he was their best linebacker last year, and I'm confident in his pro, uh, ability to be proficient at any of the positions. Yeah, I think so too. And um, it was interesting to hear him talk about like fundamental and, and the fundamental aspects of, of the position and just like being a technically sound kind of player. And holding your gap and knowing where you need to line up and knowing where the play is going to go, I, I just think that suits Pete Werner a little more than Baron Browning, who I think is more of like a see ball, get ball kind of guy. Um, so I think both of them could end up being more comfortable in these new roles, even if it's kind of strange to move a guy like Werner out of a position he was highly successful at last year. I think it makes better, it makes the defense overall uh, better given that they've lost Malik Harrison. What's your score, 1 to 10 on the linebackers? 8. I'm at an 8.3. I'm at an 8.146379. <laughs> I think that it's pretty crazy that we've gotten through all the position groups now, Landis, and we're all in the general vicinity together. And you asked me first, too, so I can't even copy you. Yeah, and, and the only one I think we have like real, real questions about is defensive tackle. 
And if they can get Teron Vincent or Haskell Garrett back in short order, I think we both feel better yeah, about buddy. that, right? Ohio State, still good. <laughs> Who would have thought? That's the, that's <laughs> <laughs> Who would have thought that bringing in right. 20 of the top 150 players every year would mean you're a good football team? Yep, turns out the Buckeyes are still good. Tune in on October 24th to see if it's true. Speaking of that. All right, let's go. Yeah, that's, that's called a segue. <laughs> <laughs> let's go to an interview with Mitch Sherman and talk a little bit more about the opener against Nebraska. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day, or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. We are very pleased to be joined on 4 to 6 with A&B by our colleague at The Athletic. does a great job covering the Nebraska Cornhuskers. Mitch Sherman joining us all the way from out in Nebraska. Mitch, how are you? And more importantly, are you eating a runza at this very second? You know, I don't eat runzas like all day, every day. Um, right, not, first question I'm, is why? Yeah, just, it's it's disappointing <laughs> uh, to you guys. I know that I'm not having one, probably not even having a runza today, which uh, is also pretty typical not to have a runza in, in a given day. But um, you know, if you go, if you were to go back a week and forward a week, then there's a good chance that uh, I'll find my way to a runza. Um, otherwise, I'm doing pretty well. I'm glad to hear it. I have a very important question about runza etiquette that we'll ask at the end okay. of, of our conversation with you. But of course, we want to talk about Ohio State and Nebraska, the opener on October 24th. It's a noon kick on Fox and an empty, well, mostly empty. Ohio Stadium. It should be kind of a surreal experience, I think, for for those of us who will be experiencing something like that for the first time. I haven't I haven't been in an empty football stadium before, Mitch. Have you? Um, not for a game. I've been yeah. <laughs> I've been in an empty stadium plenty of times. You know, scrimmages maybe those count. Um, I went to a, some Kansas games uh, several years ago that uh, were were more empty than full. But uh, no, for the for in the Big Ten, this will be a new experience. 
been to a couple high school games in Ohio, but they even had they had crowds there. So this will be kind of strange. I'm excited to hear the kind of things we like we wouldn't normally get to hear in a full stadium. Um, maybe I'll even roam a little bit and try to get a feel for the vibe on, during that game. Um, this is an interesting position, I think, for both of these programs because Ohio State and Nebraska were very much at the forefront of pushing to get a Big Ten season off the ground. I think we're all familiar with that. We've we've all talked and written a lot about it. Um, but I, I think even beyond that, like Ryan Day and Scott Frost seem very similar to me just in sort of their personalities, their backgrounds. I think these fan bases are very similar too. And I don't know, like are, are the, I know these two teams when I go out on the field on, on October 24th and beat each other, but they also seem to be kind of connected in an odd way based off what's transpired over the last few months. Yeah, there's a new kind of love between Nebraska and Ohio State that I don't think has existed in Nebraska's, uh, well, almost a decade now in the Big Ten. And, uh, you know, I, I think that's good for Nebraska to have have a, a bit of an ally in the, the East Division, at least when it comes to this issue. And I would say all issues of, um, you know, football importance, off-the-field importance. I mean, obviously obviously this is an on-the-field issue to um, simply be able to play the sport of football. But they were unified, um, I would say, more than any two other schools in this uh, in this debacle going back to, I mean, you can go back to July even before the Big Ten made its ruling to, uh, to cancel the season. And there were clearly concerns from administrators at Nebraska, from coaches at Nebraska, that they were heading down a road that didn't look good. And, uh, yeah, I think they found an ally in Ohio State. It, to me, it comes down to just the passion that is shared for athletics and for football in particular um, between the fan bases that support these programs all the way up to the to the coaches you mentioned day and, and frost I think they're similar in um, you know just the, the way they see um, the way they see the sport uh, offensive guys um, I think if if uh, all if they were if it was the middle of June, and they coached in different conferences or even in the same conference, uh, whatever it might be, if they weren't preparing for a game against each other, they could probably sit down and have a conversation and get along really well. Probably more, I would say for Scott Frost, speaking from, from his point of view, there probably is not another coach in the league that I would see him getting along with as well as Ryan Day, just in a, uh, um, in a non-competitive kind of sense. Mitch, I'm sure you get this all the time anytime you talk about Nebraska football, uh, so bear with me on this. But the thing I'm, I'm really most curious about, and, and we've had discussions about this in the past, but where is Scott Frost in terms of the reasonable expectations for the program? I mean, what does he think Nebraska should be? Does he think they, they should be what they were when he was playing, winning national championships? Or are they just trying to, to conquer the Big Ten West and, and you know kind of be on that Wisconsin plain i mean what 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 does he think is reasonable what do the fans think are reasonable and of course the most important thing is what do you think is reasonable yeah right um for sure me let's, let's start with me yeah. no that's I, what i want to do <laughs> i i i think that the fans and the coach and the program as a whole are more aligned right now in what they think is reasonable and what the expectations are than has been the case for most of the past two decades either the the fans thought higher than the coach which was probably usually the case I don't really remember too many instances or any instances where the fans expectations were below those of the coach Um, but they haven't always been aligned in the same way that they are now and part of that is because Scott Frost is one of the people he is a Nebraskan 
Um, he born, raised in Nebraska, played high school football, uh, most of his college football career in Nebraska, spent some of his pre-coaching life here. The very beginnings of his of his coaching career were, were rooted in Nebraska. So uh, he understands what the people of Nebraska uh, stress about when it comes to football every day, what gets them excited, what their expectations are. And his expectations for this program, I would say, have shifted through the years right along with those of the fans. They're not striving right now here in October of 2020 to go back to 1997 or 1995. That's like five steps down the road in the progression and not even really on the minds, I would say, of Nebraska people or the head coach. They want to beat their rivals in the Big Ten West. They want to be able to conquer Iowa, to get over the hump against Wisconsin. Um, You can put Minnesota in that category now after the way things went uh, last year in Minneapolis and three years ago in Minneapolis before Scott Frost was the coach. You can put Purdue in that category. Scott Frost is 0-2 against Jeff Brom and Purdue. So there are a lot of steps that they have to climb to get to that, you know, what, what I think is a realistic expectation for everybody in Nebraska right now to win the Big Ten West before they can even think about the things and the places that this program has been in generations past. When you look at the Ohio State-Nebraska game, Mitch, I hope what uh, John can edit that out. I, I, like, lost you for a second. I'm sorry. Um, that's fine. Go ahead and you can and have Bill patronize me. Um, Mitch, when you look at year-by-year progressions based on those expectations, it seems like you know Nebraska's kind of in line with that. It seems to be in focus with that. Uh, how do they view this football game? Do they view Ohio State, uh, the Ohio State game as a litmus test to see year-by-year as an annual comparison of how they played against them last year? I mean, what's the viewpoint of this game? Uh, it's like Hail Mary. It's like, you know, hey, let's just take a shot. I think there's a, a little bit of a different sense of unknown going into the game this year because – it's week one in late October, and everybody's had a crazy off season, and you don't really know what kind of condition these teams are going to be in physically, mentally, with the virus, with, with, with everything. It's such an unusual opening week that, in a way, that probably provides Nebraska with a little bit of a, of a, of a sense of hope more than it would, it would have if it was playing Ohio State. Uh, you know, in week seven and the Buckeyes were, uh, you know, number three in the country and Nebraska was hovering around 500. Um, you, you, you might not feel the same way that, uh, that I think Nebraska feels about this game now. Um, that's not to say that Nebraska expects to go in and win. I, you know, I think they're, they're like, all right, look what happened in Columbus two years ago. Um, when Adrian Martinez was a true freshman and Ohio State was coming off of that that terrible game against Purdue. And, you know, really everything was going wrong for Ohio State. And Nebraska nearly went in there and won the game. Uh, that uh, probably provides a little bit of hope. But it's all tempered with the understanding and the realization and the knowledge of what has happened in other recent games between these two programs when they didn't even look like they belonged on the same field in the same league. I mean, just completely outclassed in terms of talent and skill. Nebraska was last year um, in in 2017-16. You know, for the majority of the time that these two have been locked as um, interdivision, you know, every year opponents, it's been uh, been pretty ugly with the exception of two years ago. So, um, you know, I think there's a glimmer of hope for Nebraska that it can catch Ohio State at a bad time, that it's it's going to be, um, you know, far from its peak in week one. But um, that's, that's, um, you know, that's maybe a reach. 
Mitch, one more thing before I'm sure Bill's probably itching to get to Adrian Martinez because I kind of am too and some of the the on-the-field stuff. But when you talked about the Ohio State-Nebraska matchup, obviously you spoke about talent and talent gap a little bit. And I'm wondering, and I wrote and you shared a story that I wrote this week about my dream recruiting scenario if I were in charge of Nebraska and what they're yeah. doing. A, what do you think Nebraska's departure from the Big 12 has meant for the change of that program's identity? And do you think focusing on St. Louis, Chicago, and Dallas is the right thing to do? And how do you feel like Nebraska's uh, plan to acquire talent has shifted as a result of that? Yeah, St. Louis, Chicago, Dallas, Kansas City, Minneapolis, wherever the players are at within that 500 miles or so of Lincoln. And right now there's an upswing of talent in eastern Nebraska. There's all kinds of players in this 20 class, in the tw- I'm sorry, in the 21 class, in the 22 class. Uh, the number one tight end in the country is sitting in, in, in western Iowa, and Nebraska has a commitment from him. So, you know, that right there is is the core that you, you have. If you're Nebraska, you, you must – get those players in your backyard and then you've got to expand it out uh, to the more more uh, metropolitan areas around uh, the region and you know you hit it right on the head Ari with, with in, in talking about some of those areas and Nebraska struggled um, a lot to be able to get in and make any kind of headway in St. Louis I don't know if it's because other programs have such a strong foothold there if it's because it's closer uh, geographically to some programs that historically have done better there. Chicago has also been a spot where Nebraska hasn't done great. Obviously, that's uh, Notre Dame's backyard. Michigan can recruit there. It's 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 a, um, a stronghold for a lot of Big Ten programs. But the Huskers have done well um, in some of those other areas. Historically, they've done well in Texas. But leaving the Big 12, uh, you know, it took a lot of their their weight uh, out of the state of Texas. It was more difficult to recruit there. You know, I think – um, as we progress in college football toward an age where players are going to be able to transfer even more easily than they can today, um, it looks like a year from now that's going to be a reality. Um, as we get into name, image, and likeness as such an important thing in recruiting, that it's going to be important for Nebraska, and maybe this runs counterintuitive to what some people might think, but it's going to be important for Nebraska to almost narrow its focus in recruiting instead of trying to cast such a wide net. For, for years and years and years, it was recruit nationally from Southern California to the East Coast and wherever in between. You know, I think players are more focused and more understanding of what they want today because of the way that information travels and because of the options that are available to them once they get into school. So it would be good for Nebraska to narrow its focus. And if it's not working in St. Louis or it's not working in Chicago, you know, forget the fact that that is a five or six hour drive from Lincoln. And if you can recruit in Phoenix and you can do it great and you got a history of getting players from there, then focus on that area because really, you know, there, as you know, there, there, any, anywhere where there's a lot of people, there's a lot of talent. Yeah, and there's a Portillo's in Phoenix, so that's you know if you can't if you can't make it work in Chicago, then just go down to Phoenix and get yourself a hot dog down there. Right, and the, and the Huskers have done well in Arizona, so I'm, I'm sure a lot of it has to yeah. do with the Portillo's. Don't don't get Ari started on programs that recruit well in Arizona when Arizona itself doesn't recruit well there. Uh, Ask the question, Bill, before I get going. <laughs> Mitch, I want to I want to drill down a little bit on on some kind of game stuff more football focused stuff with nebraska you mentioned adrian martinez and he was a high school quarterback that i think ryan day really liked um yeah and i I don't know if the the shoulder injury that adrian had in high school maybe was a little too much for for ohio state to get fully on board but i think they liked the skill set and then he showed up in 2018 played really well he almost beat ohio state 
Last year was very different, and, and I know he had some injury issues, but he, he, he there was not a you know step forward, at least from my point of view, for, for a guy who's as talented as Adrian is. Where is he at right now? What's, what's the expectation for him, and how does Luke McCaffrey fit in this conversation when he, now Adrian has a very talented quarterback sitting behind him now? Yeah, it's really interesting right now. I didn't expect that this preseason was going to go the way that it has in Lincoln, and McCaffrey has made a legitimate push for the number one job. Uh, coming out of a scrimmage last week, we're talking about around October 10th, 11th, uh, major scrimmage in Lincoln. And in the days that followed, it was all about McCaffrey. And it was I was taken aback in the interviews to hear so much from offensive players and from Scott Frost himself about the exceptional nature with which a, a Luke, Mar, Luke McCaffrey, Adrian, Adrian McCaffrey. No, that's, that's what it's going to be. <laughs> we got Luke Martinez, a quarterback for Nebraska. Uh, <laughs> McCaffrey, uh, ha, he, he moved the ball extremely well. Um, it seems that players are drawn to him in, in, a, in, in just a, a real special kind of way. You know, I think some of it is that McCaffrey aura. Um, you know, everybody on the team is a, a fan of his of his older brother. Um, interestingly, Luke spent time with Christian McCaffrey this offseason, more time than the two of them really have ever spent together since they've been off since since Christian went off to Stanford because he was home in Colorado during the pandemic. They trained together. Their dad, Ed, is head coach at, at Northern Colorado. Uh, he he worked with them. Um, Dylan McCaffrey, you know, a Big Ten guy, well, was a Big Ten guy. We don't know where he's going to end up in, in his transfer from Michigan, but he was there. Older brother Max McCaffrey was there. I think that was a springboard for Luke. And I, I know this is a question about Adrian Martinez, but you can't talk about the Nebraska quarterback situation right now, at least this week, a week before the opener, without really getting into Luke McCaffrey and what his role in this offense is going to be. I think Adrian will be the starter next Saturday. I really do, despite all of this momentum for McCaffrey. I think Adrian has had a good offseason he's lost a little bit of weight he maybe got too big last year he's healed up that that uh, that uh, non-throwing shoulder which is the the, the not, obviously not the shoulder that he hurt um in cal in in, uh, in high school in, in fresno that was his right shoulder his throwing shoulder this was his non-throwing shoulder he had surgery in december after the season um had a knee issue last year for the second straight year that's that's uh, all healed up. I think Adrian had a very good offseason. I think he has the confidence of his of his offensive teammates. I think he's going to start game one. Um, I also think we're going to see a lot of Luke McCaffrey this year. I don't know how it's going to work. I don't know if they're going to alternate series. Um, I, I don't expect that. I don't think they're going to alternate quarters. I think there's going to be uh, a s- situations where Luke McCaffrey comes in. Maybe it's at receiver. Maybe they're both on the field at the same time. Maybe uh, McCaffrey comes in for a play here or there. It'll work itself out, I would imagine. Scott Frost is not the kind of coach who's going to have a uh, a quarterback controversy drag through the season. He, as a former quarterback himself, he wants uh, a guy to know that the job is his. But right now, I don't think Frost knows who, who who's um, whose job it is. Whoever it is um, has some interesting offensive weapons. Uh, first of all, the offensive line returns everybody. Right, all, all the starters are back from last year. Um, Good, good running back, and I love Wondell Robinson. That's another kid Ohio State recruited a little bit. Uh, I'm curious of how, how you think they might use him this year because Ohio State is going through a bit of a transition with its secondary, and Sean Wade, who played basically exclusively in the slot last year, is now moving outside. So there's going to be somebody new covering the slot. There's going to be another new corner, new safety. There's only one returning starter, and, and Wondell Robinson in particular seems like somebody who, who will be a really good test to see like where the back end of Ohio State's defense is. But when you go back and look at last year's game, I think he only had one catch 
a handful of targets. They kind of used him as, as a running threat more than they did as a receiver. Is, is that what the season will look like for him, or is he going to be more of a receiver this year? He's going to be more of a receiver. You know, things can change when guys get hurt, and that's kind of the way it was last year. He went into his true freshman season. Uh, expected to play receiver, and then there were there were injuries, suspensions, other issues at the running back spot, a whole mess of things with Maurice Washington, who was their most talented running back a year ago, and Wandale became a featured back um, in, in certain times during the year. He was he was uh, carrying too big of a load um, for someone his size, and ended up having injury issues of his own. So uh, the whole second half of the year for him was kind of dodging. Dodging things and trying to get healthy—that's not going to be the case this year. Um, I'm confident that Nebraska has enough guys at running back, including a couple of true freshmen, and, and they picked up some um, some walk-ons who, who who were kind of um, you know off off to the side of college football players who who had good high school careers and then got overlooked for whatever reason. Um, so there's a number of guys at that running back spot right now behind Dedrick Mills, who's who's clearing away the the, the starter and, and will be a, a 20 to 25 carry a game um, guy. All of that is going to allow Wandale to to fit as the slot receiver, and he's got a a running mate this year who who is a lot like him, uh, true freshman Alante Brown, who played prep school a year ago and was the the top rated prep school recruit in the country. Um, from the East Coast, he's a, a former high school quarterback from Chicago. Um, a lot of the same, the, the, the things that we heard about Wandale Robinson a year ago, and even in the spring of of nineteen, when he when he came as an early enrollee, have been said and even said louder in some cases about Alante Brown. So um, they play the same position. They're both they're both slot guys. I, I'm, I'm sure there will be formations where they can get on the field at the same time. But that's a way that Nebraska could stress Ohio State's defense, especially if there's inexperience in, in guarding those inside receivers. You know, for, we're getting a little nitty gritty, I guess, for a game that's still a week away. But, but in my mind, like the only thing that makes this remotely close is is if Nebraska's offense can can put some points in Ohio State's defense. I just don't see, you know, the alternative of Nebraska's defense slowing down Ohio State's offense no. as, as being all that realistic. Um, Nebraska's got a new offensive coordinator, Matt Lubick, who was at Washington a couple of years ago when Ohio State played him in the Rose Bowl. Another former Oregon guy. What's going to change, if anything, with this offense and? Um, do you think are we going to see any more of the old school Nebraska stuff that we saw last year? It was like the lone bright spot for Nebraska in that game against Ohio State. Yeah, you saw it against Ohio State where they lined up in the I formation, ran a little option. That was the only time all year uh, Nebraska fans went crazy. You know that drive ended, I believe, in, in a in a um, an, an interception by a Jeffrey Okudo where he was laying on his back on the on the field, and it was just a crazy play. Um, and and then it, it went away. It's not the bread and butter. It's never going to be the bread and butter for Nebraska. I wouldn't be surprised if they if they roll it out in week one because it had a little bit of success against Ohio State. In that, you know, by the time that Nebraska would have had an opportunity to bring that thing back out in that game in Lincoln a year ago, it was out of hand, and Nebraska wasn't going to get back in that thing by running option and and uh, you know I formation. They had to they had to go with. Um, you know, trying to throw their way back into that game. And, of course, that didn't work. So um, who knows? Maybe the first series they'll come out with a fullback and uh, and, and line up and, and try to catch Ohio State off guard. I, I don't think so. I think what Lubick does is he allows Frost to be more open, more free, um, you know, feel more empowered to run some of the things that that turned him into the giving him the reputation as an offensive mind that he had when he was at Oregon and when he went to UCF and and it just had every opponent off balance with the way that they ran that offense, albeit in a in a league with which with uh, 
um, much less impressive defenses than what he sees in the Big Ten. And it's, it's been an adjustment. Um, I think Frost, uh, you know, will, will say that that he's made some mistakes in the way that he's called some games, especially at the end of games last year against Colorado, last year against Iowa, games that they could have won if if we would have seen. I think um, Scott Frost confident in in some of his weapons on offense. He's got to be confident um, in the players that they have. That's the only way they're going to have success. I think Matt Lubick and the, the reuniting of those two from their Oregon days allows him to do some of that. It gives him a, a feeling. Of, um, of of creativity, the two of them together uh, will generate that, and it, and it, it works with um, the some of the offensive weapons that they've got back, and some of the guys that they um, that they have added in this uh, in this last recruiting cycle. In addition to having two quarterbacks who both fit in interesting ways into the way they can run their offense, so um, that, that's what Lubick brings. They didn't they haven't overhauled the offense. Um, he's not call, Frost is still still calling the plays. It's going to look a lot like it did a year ago, but I do think Frost is is, is going to um, feel empowered to be more creative in in this uh, in this setup. And now two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream Directv satellite free. You see this? A family watching baseball on Directv with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on Directv makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. Directv has the most MLB games. Visit Directv.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Mitch, why does Nebraska have commitment from three tight ends in the same class? <laughs> No, I'm, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. We can go down that road if you want. <laughs> I was writing about Nebraska tight ends uh, today, and I was like, they're all really good. I was just like, I haven't seen three tight ends very often in the same class. But I want to stick with the recruiting question, if you don't mind, because that's my brand. You bet. And then I'll let Bill get to the more important yeah. question. But Nebraska actually has recruited quite well, right? They've had the best class in the last three years in the Big Ten West, top 25 classes since. Um I know that there's been some disappointment from Nebraska in terms of the results on the field because, as we know, when a team like Nebraska that's got fans the way that they do hires a coach with so much hype, things go a little bit off the rails a little bit in terms of excitement. But is it working? Is the build process, is the Nebraska that you see today coming into Ohio Stadium in a little bit over a week a much better version of what it was the day that Scott Frost walked in? Yeah, and then there's been setbacks. It's one step back two step for two steps forward and i think there have been too many steps back and this off season hasn't been great for that building process it's been great it's been good with the guys who were on campus and the guys who have stuck around but there's too much attrition um it doesn't mean anything to have the best rated class in the big 10 west when three of your top players all from the state of florida interestingly leave the program and transfer away before they've ever played in a game. And I understand that, that the situations are 
unique. The, the circumstances are unique this year in 2020. The team hasn't mm -hmm. been together in the same way that it would just physically together through the months of the off season. They didn't have spring practice, but um, I've not seen a, a something like that transpire. Um, sure, you have guys that you know, maybe leave in in numbers after they've been in the program for a season, but we're talking about three guys who signed in December who were three of their best players, all on the defensive side of the ball, all from the state of Florida, who, who are gone right now. They had seven signees from Florida, four remain. So when that kind of a thing becomes a trend, and there has been a lot of attrition under Frost, um, there was in the, in the previous coaching regime, you can go back six, seven years, Nebraska has annually won the recruiting race in its division and has not put that kind of talent together on the field. Um, has not mm -hmm. put those kind of players at that level into the NFL. It's in the middle of its worst stretch in 60 years in sending players to the NFL through the draft. So something isn't clicking over a four- and five-year period. I will say right now, if you want to reverse 24 months, 25 months, and say go back to the time when Scott Frost debuted as the Nebraska head coach in August, September of 2018, where are they at right now as they get ready to start year three? They're a much better program. They have much better talent that fits the kind of system that they want to run on the offensive and defensive side, but it hasn't been a smooth ride. Um, there have been mm -hmm. lots of holes in the road, and that's something they're going to have to clean up if they want to improve at, at the rate that they expect to. Is there... I do have. I do want to get to my runs of question, but just based off what you said, Mitch, is there like what's the sense then, based off what everything you just said with the fan base and, and Scott Frost? Has he? I know you said they don't expect you know them to compete for national championships right now, but is there a, a sense at all that he's underachieved the last two years, given what you've said about the talent that they've recruited and you know the disconnect with it coming out the other end and going to the NFL? Yeah, I think he feels like he's underachieved. I mean, he 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 never had had. Um, one losing season, let alone two in a row as a coach or a player in, in his career, not back-to-back. -back. Um, I mean, he was successful in everything that he did on the field um, from his time at Northern Iowa to, to Oregon, Central Florida, you know, and then he gets to Nebraska and, and you go four and eight and five and seven. Um, it's been, I think, really, really difficult on Scott and on his coaching staff who's accustomed to success and, of course, on the fans who are accustomed to success over a long period of time. Um, they, they feel like this program has underachieved. So uh, <laughs> what do you do? I mean, you, ha you, you go about fixing it. You've got to collect talent. You've got to recruit talent. You've got to develop that talent. You've got to install the culture that you feel is going to work for this program. Um, I think they believe they're doing all of those things. The fans believe that Scott Frost is doing all of those things. It's just not translating to wins yet. Um, you know, a break here or a break there goes different in each of these last two seasons. And we're probably not talking about four and eight, five and seven. We could be talking about seven and five, eight and four. And it, it would, uh, you might have the same personnel. You might have basically the same stats and it would look and feel a lot different just because of a bounce here or a bounce there. So at some point, um, I would expect they're going to start getting some of those breaks and it will, um, you know, it will look different on the field. That doesn't mean they're going to be at the level of Ohio State or, or, or Penn State. Hey, Bill, can I just ask one quick one? Because mm -hmm. I'm just very curious, and I've always been curious about this. Mitch, from your vantage point, you know, being as plugged in there as anybody, do you think Nebraska's program would be healthier or easier to build if they were still in the Big 12? 
Well, that's a great question. Um, yeah, I think strictly from a football building standpoint, it would. Um, geographically, it makes more sense to play against Kansas and Kansas State, Missouri, Colorado. Um, I mean, two of those teams I just mentioned have left the league in addition to Nebraska, mm-hmm. so it's not just like in a vacuum. If Nebraska was in the Big 12, everything would be better. I, I will say, and I want to be clear, I think Nebraska made the right choice in coming to the Big Ten for the viability of his institution, for the long-term financial place that it's in. But if you just want to say we're only talking about football and for Nebraska over the last decade, would things have been better in, on the field if, if it had stayed in the Big 12? Absolutely. I mean, you wouldn't be talking about all of these losing seasons. They had to undergo a, a, a huge adjustment. And two coaches ago, you go back to Bo Pelini, he was underprepared um, with his defense to be able to do the things that he needed to do to win in the Big, in the Big 10. And it took him several years to realize that. And by that time, it was too late for him to to rebuild. And they've been reeling ever since. They made the wrong hire with Mike Riley. Um, there were things about it that were okay, but overall, it was the wrong hire. It's why he lasted only three years. And th- again, they're still recovering from that. So it's a domino effect, and a lot of it can be traced back to the change in conference. Long term, I-, I think it'll work out for Nebraska better to be in the Big Ten. And as I said, it's better for the university. But for winning football games, um, it, it hasn't been great. Mitch, Ohio State's in a place right now where the, the, the expectation is they will be in Indianapolis on the first Saturday in December whenever the Big Ten Championship falls every year unless something catastrophic happens to blow up the program. They, the expectation is they get there. And I think right now they also expect Ohio State fans that when they do get there, they're probably going to be playing Wisconsin. Maybe the off mm-hmm. year it's Northwestern or Iowa. More often than not, it's going to be Wisconsin. How far removed do you think we are from maybe that switching and the expectation being that more often than not, Nebraska will be the team that's in Indianapolis? Well, I don't see Wisconsin going in the other direction. I look at what Wisconsin's doing in recruiting, and it's as strong or stronger than ever. And, you know, they're, they're, they're solid. I mean, right now, this week, this month, yeah, they have issues because their quarterback has a broken foot. But um, I, their, their program is going in the right direction. So I'm not ready to put – a, a timetable on it until Nebraska goes out and beats Wisconsin. Not once, but consistently. Like, win two or three in a row, or three out of four. And then you can say, all right, we're ready to be at this level where Nebraska's the team that you should expect to be in, in, in Indianapolis. And even if you do that, well, you've lost six in a row to Iowa. So there's a lot of, you know, there, as I said before, there's a lot of steps that Nebraska has to climb before it can be the team that Ohio State expects to see in the conference championship game. I, I, I think Scott Frost can do that. I think he can get Nebraska there. I think it's a realistic expectation and a realistic goal for Nebraska to strive to win the Big Ten West on a regular basis. But um, they have a lot of hurdles to overcome first. All right. This is, this is the important part of the conversation now. Uh, our first trip, or my first trip to Lincoln was in 2017. I'm not sure if that was Ari's first trip there or not. Um, Weren't we there together? Yeah, but I wasn't sure if you were there before me. Um, and, you know, people tell you, go go get a Runza. So we go and get a Runza. And I wasn't sure what to expect. And then I get it. And it's it's like cheesesteak adjacent. It's not totally a cheesesteak. But if you get, there's one that comes with, like, cheese inside it. And then, you know, it's it's chopped up beef. It's cheese. It's a roll. There's some cabbage. And, um, you know, and, and uh, I'm from Philadelphia. I've had a lot of cheesesteaks in my life. And I think it's frowned upon to put ketchup on your cheesesteak, but I kind of do it anyway. Is it frowned upon to put ketchup on your runza? 
Yeah, I wouldn't do it. I um, I, I don't think that's good. Um, I don't I don't think a runza needs any sauce on it. I, I don't. I mean, I think people can probably put barbecue sauce or yeah, gosh, there may be ranch at a runza. Um, I, I I've never done that. I don't know that I've ever seen it. I don't um, I don't put ketchup on runzas. Now, one thing I've discovered, Bill, very recently, and if you're in Nebraska anytime soon, I, I, I think you should experiment with this. You can have the employees at Runza add ingredients inside the Runza. Like you, you see it on the on the menu. Like I want the Swiss mushroom Runza, which has Swiss cheese, mushrooms, cabbage, beef. Let's say you want um, something out. Let's say you want uh, some French fries in your runs whatever it is within reason that they have back in the kitchen they can add into your runza they'll just slice that that's kind of a game changer yeah, they slice that thing open they 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 put this new stuff in and and then they stick it in the oven for a minute to uh to bake it back together i i for years and years didn't know about this and discovered it recently so i'm i'm starting to test out some things and I, i'm going to get more bold as the as the uh, fall goes on well, what's your what's your go-to order right now uh, before you go down the experiment road? Because like the French fry inside of the thing sounds like I would do that. Yeah, you can do that. Um, I I haven't asked to do that yet, but I I've I've heard that it's it's good. And you know I could like butcher the thing in my kitchen and and put it in there. But I'm I'm I want I would like them to do it for me in the restaurant. So right. I get the um, I get the there's the spicy Jack Runza. Um, it has jalapenos. Um, and uh, pepper jack cheese, and then all of the all of the normal stuff, and it has a little kick to it. So that's that's my go-to right now. Uh, the last couple times I've been there, um, I've I've got that. They have they um, you know in in the fall generally they they kind of they bring out some new stuff on their menu because that is and I I mean I don't want this I don't want to have another hour conversation, but we could. <laughs> you start talking about Runza in the fall. And that's when the cinnamon rolls in chili come out. It's let's go, yeah, let's go, yeah. That, that, <laughs> that's a Nebraska, a, a, a unique um, Nebraska delicacy is the uh, the chili and cinnamon rolls. I'm I'm against um, dipping the cinnamon roll into the chili. Some Nebraskans like that. I just I like to eat them separate, but together in the same meal. So um, the fall menu at Runza is a sight to behold because you get you get some new types of runza sandwiches plus the chili cinnamon roll combo i was in omaha in november um two years ago for a basketball game ohio state played creighton and i i experimented with the cinnamon roll chili combination and i was reluctant to do so and i thought it was much better separate than they were like in the same bite i couldn't i couldn't get behind it being in the same bite i've never done it i've i i i think that I think it went. I think some people just went astray. Like they, they, they knew that the chili and cinnamon rolls were eaten in the same meal. Like maybe you'd eat steak and salad in the same meal, but you don't put the lettuce and the salad dressing on your steak. So I, I, I think some people are very misguided in the way that they, they, they dip the cinnamon roll into the chili. I don't, I don't do it. I don't recommend it. Um, you know, I'll, I'll, I will, I stand against it. All right, well, Mitch, I need you to do me a favor. Uh, assuming you're out here for the Ohio State-Nebraska uh, game on the 24th, I need you to pack a few runs in the suitcase and bring them out here for me. I mean, we're talking like I, I need to put them – I need to freeze them. So, well, 
We'll see. Uh, we'll listen, see. Yeah, whatever. I can't make. I'm. I. I will. Just you know, put them in a bag and carry them on, and then deliver them the second you get to the airport. <laughs> they'll be fine. <laughs> okay. All right. I'm gonna. I'm gonna look. I'm gonna look into to uh, to uh, air airplane storage of Runzas, um, and I will be in touch offline, Bill. Okay, I appreciate that. Uh, again, Ohio State, Nebraska, October 24th. We're a little over a week away from the season opener. I think it's going to be really interesting. I do think Nebraska will present some things that, that could tell us um, quite a bit about Ohio State as it, as it gets its season rolling and then plays Penn State in week two. Mitch Sherman, thanks so much for joining us, for uh, sharing some of your insight on Nebraska. We really appreciate it. Thanks, Mitch. Yeah, absolutely. Good to talk to you guys. Our thanks again to Mitch Sherman for joining us on the show to provide some information and insight on the Nebraska Corn Huskers. Ari, when I mentioned in our conversation with Mitch putting uh, ketchup on a cheesesteak, I saw you like you're, you perked up a little bit. I think I strained my neck. <laughs> um, first of all, before we get to the ketchup thing, because I'm very passionate about this, um, one, and my mother is from Israel, and I bring this up because in the Middle East and in other parts of the world, putting fries on a sandwich is a very normal thing mm-hmm. they put it in the pita bread if you have uh, a euro in greece you know they put it in there and i think people think Pramani brothers is some sort of visionary for putting the fries on the sandwich but any chance that you can do that like if i ever go back to runza again which is a certainty if i'm ever in nebraska because i thought it was really good i would ask to put the fries in so i just want to make sure are we on the same page with fries on sandwich yeah i was looking up flights i was looking up flights to omaha when mitch said that so yeah we're we're good yeah i also like potato chips on deli sandwiches but that's another conversation i'm on board with that too okay cool so now we're two for two also this is my rant i'm tired of people telling me what i can and can't put ketchup on shut up (laughs) if you're from chicago and you can never put ketchup on a hot dog yeah i can and i do and it's great I love ketchup. It's the best condiment. And I don't know where you and I are going to stand on this. I might personally offend you. But I think that cheesesteak is a very easy thing to recreate. And I know that you're a big, it's the bread guy. But I personally think that if you're in a food court and you get a Charlie steak or a steak escape or something, that they're still pretty good sandwiches. I'm not saying it's on par with what you might get at your favorite spots out there because I know bread. and But Charlie's makes a good steak sandwich. Um, but when I go to Charlie's, I have three different buckets. I have one for honey mustard, and I have one for ketchup, and sometimes even one for ranch, depending on what sandwich you get. And I always put mayonnaise on the, the cheesesteak. I don't know if you're an anti-mayonnaise guy on your cheesesteak. You're the expert here. Nope. I put mayonnaise on it, and then I dip it into ketchup or one of the sauces every bite, like the corner of the sandwich into the thing. So every bite has its own personalized full of that yeah Yeah. so like i but i i put ketchup and if you have a really nice steak i don't do it because a really nice steak is seasoned well and i don't want to mask the taste but i'd put ketchup on steak i put ketchup on my hamburger i put it on my hot dog i put it on my cheesesteak and i put it on my french fries and i think you yelled at me once for what were what did i dip ketchup into that you told me was like a five-year-old would do that Chicken finger. I said chicken chicken finger. Yeah. Oh, yeah, chicken finger into the ketchup. Remember at the press box? <laughs> yeah. You got all offended that I was – screw off, man. Like, chicken finger into ketchup is completely acceptable. I love ketchup. It's my favorite condiment. It's delicious. I like it. I'm not, I'm not anti-ketchup, and I <clears> – it is, it is I think, considered a misstep to put it on your cheesesteak, but I do it. Um, not all the time. Depends on – like, especially if it's a dry steak, I'll put it on there. Um, 
But I, do I, people in Philadelphia like look down at you if you do that? I think it depends on where you are. Is it like the Chicago hot dog thing? Yeah, but if you're one of the tourist spots, like if you're Patrick Gino's or whatever, like everyone does it because they don't know any better. Um, but they're like my favorite place is it's called John's Roast Pork, but I go there for the cheesesteak. Like that cheesesteak doesn't need ketchup. Um, it's really good. It's uh, succulent, the right word. I don't know if succulent's the right word or not, but it's really it's really good. The the quality of beef there is really good. That you don't need the the. If dress everybody it up. is if everybody's putting the ketchup on the cheesesteak at tourist places because they don't know any better. It just means that it's better with it. Everybody it, means it's, it. it means it's a shitty cheesesteak is what it means. Well, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I haven't been able to go on the Philadelphia cheesesteak tour with you, which is if I ever have uh, 24 hours to live, I know what I'm doing. Um, but I, I don't know if something is so flavorful that it doesn't need. I went to a place in um, – Atlantic City called White House Subs. Have you been there? I've not been there. I, I know of it, but I've not been there. And I got a cheesesteak there, and I think it's like in line with what, and I thought it was delicious. And when you get uh, the large one there, I think it's like a 16-inch sandwich. You know, it's like eight on both sides. And I think I ate one without ketchup and the other side with ketchup. But mayonnaise on the whole thing. I think mayonnaise is a must on a cheesesteak. I get it sometimes, and... Like, when I was growing up, if you got it on a cheesesteak, you got, like, mayonnaise, and you also got lettuce and tomato on it, and they called it the cheesesteak hoagie, which I didn't really like all that much. But, um, yeah, if I get one around here for whatever reason, like, at the, at the Bella's, I get mayonnaise on it. The Bella's is delicious, I think. It's fine. The roll could be better. See, I think the best thing about it is the roll. It's a passable roll. It's not, it's not a great roll. Well, some someday me and you will go somewhere, someplace and have a yeah, great roll. You keep saying that. We'll see. We'll see. Okay. Uh, please send all of your uh, hate mail about putting ketchup on a steak to Ari Wasserman. Um, Not a great steak, but if I am at Chili's or something and I want, you know, I, I, I would put it on my steak at home. I wouldn't put it on at Mastro's. If I'm paying $60 at SW Steakhouse in the win. I'm not putting ketchup on it. Don't misrepresent what I said. <laughs> okay, sorry. Anyway, like you can also leave Apple five-star reviews and uh, scold Ari for putting ketchup on a steak in any form. If you want to. <laughs> and also, please subscribe to The Athletic. Theathletic.com slash 4-6 gets you a dollar per month on the, annual subscri- on the annual subscription. You can read our stuff. You can read Mitch Sherman's stuff. Thanks again to Mitch for joining us on this episode of 4-6 with A&B. Thank you for indulging our uh, cheesesteak tangent at the end of the episode. Uh, we hope you learned a little bit about Ohio State's opening opponent. And we're excited. We're, we got two more episodes. And then after that, we'll have an actual game to break down. And I can't wait for it. We'll talk to you guys next week. Thank you.